said salute. Welcome back to the Manifesting Podcast. Just a quick rundown of what we'll be discussing this episode. Of course, we're going to be continuing our read-through of philosophical trends in the feminist movement. Last week, we covered the chapter on radical feminism, so we'll do just a really brief recap on that, and we'll go ahead and move that forward into the next two chapters, which are on anarcho-feminism and eco-feminism. Before we get into the recap, just a little news concerning the show. Um, I was able to procure another interview with one J. Mufuad Paul. Um, we're probably going to be doing that early April, probably the 6th or the 7th. We'll be talking about his newest book, Demarcation and Demystification, which is awesome. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, definitely do so, especially during these quarantine times. We have a lot of extra time on our hands. So do check out his book. We'll talk a little about that, probably a little bit about COVID, and probably just shoot the shit about communism in general. So looking forward to that. And speaking of COVID, um, again, much like like last episode, you were watching it unfold. Looks like Italy is being hit especially hard with deaths into like the six or seven hundreds each day. So really horrifying to watch develop. Hopefully all of you are getting by okay. I know a lot of us have lost our jobs, so times are tough financially. Um, hopefully the, the self-quarantine and the quarantine in general is going well for you. I've been using this time to try to read as much as possible. I've been trying to learn another language, so I'm trying to be as productive as possible. So hopefully you are able to do something along the same lines. If nothing else, I saw that Harvey Weinstein did get COVID-19. So uh, the hits just keep on rolling for that piece of shit, which is, which is nice to see, if nothing else. Just jumping into our recap of what we covered last week in Philosophical Trends in the Feminist Movement, we covered the chapter on radical feminism. Now, radical feminism was a step in the right direction, at least as it compares to liberal feminism, because it was calling for more than just reformism or relying on electoral politics to make any progress, especially as it concerns the women's question. Now, while it was a step in the right direction, it was also a little short-sighted itself in the fact that it was calling for things like separatism, it believed in biodeterminism, and, you know, for better or worse, if we sit down and think about revolution or overthrowing a mode of production like capitalism, it is definitely an all-hands-on-deck situation. So calling for a complete separation between men and women is one, not that realistic at the end of the day, and two, it's anti-revolutionary. Uh, you know, we're not going to be able to win a revolution simply with just men or just women. It is, again, kind of an all-hands-on-deck situation. The author in her critique also levels a, a very similar criticism against radical feminism as she did against liberal feminism. Radical feminism tends to be espoused by white Western women, so their proposed solutions often leave out not only women of color, but some of the most highly exploited women across the globe. So if your solutions are not representing a large majority of women across the globe, it's just not revolutionary in any single way. That being said, let's go ahead and move into chapters three and four about anarcho-feminism and eco-feminism. As always, any questions, concerns, comments, or death threats can be sent to me on Twitter at ManifestPod. Chapter 3, Anarcha-Feminism The feminist movement has been influenced by anarchism, and the anarchists have considered the radical feminists closest to their ideas. Hence, the body of work called anarcha-feminism can be considered as being very much a part of the radical feminist movement. 
Anarchists considered all forms of government or the state as authoritarian and private property as tyrannical. They envisaged the creation of a society which would have no government, no hierarchy, and no private property. While the anarchist ideas of Bakunin, Kropotkin, and other classic anarchists have been an influence, the famous American anarchist Emma Goldman has been particularly influential in the feminist movement. Emma Goldman, Lithuanian by birth, migrated to the U.S. in 1885 and as a worker in various garment factories came into contact with anarchist and socialist ideas. She became an active agitator, speaker, and campaigner for anarchist ideas. In the contemporary feminist movement, the anarchists circulated Emma Goldman's writings and her ideas, which have been extremely influential. Anarcho-feminists agree that there is no one version of anarchism, but within the anarchist tradition they share a common understanding on one, a criticism of existing societies focusing on relations of power and domination, two, a vision of an alternate, egalitarian, non-authoritarian society along with claims about how it could be organized, and three, a strategy for moving from one to the other. They envisaged a society in which human freedom is ensured, but believe that human freedom and community go together. But the communities must be structured in such a way that makes freedom possible. There should be no hierarchies or authority. Their vision is different from the Marxist and liberal tradition, but is closest to what the radical feminists are struggling for, the practice they are engaged in. For the anarchists believe that the means must be consistent with the aims. The process by which the revolution is brought about, the structures must reflect the new society and relations that have to be created. Hence, the process and the form of organization are extremely important. According to the anarchists, dominance and subordination depends on a hierarchical social structures which are enforced by the state and through economic coercion, that is through the control over property, etc. Their critique of society is not based on classes and exploitation, or on the class nature of the state, etc., but is focused on hierarchy and domination. The state defends and supports these hierarchical structures, and decisions at the central level are imposed upon those who are subordinate in this hierarchy. So for them, hierarchical social structures are the roots of domination and subordination in society. This leads to ideological domination as well, because the view that is promoted and propagated is the official view, the view of those who dominate the structure and its processes. Anarchists are critical of Marxists because according to them, revolutionaries are creating hierarchical organizations, the party, through which to bring about change. According to them, once a hierarchy is created, it is impossible for people at the top to relinquish their power. Hence, they believe that the process by which the change is sought to be brought about is equally important. Quote, within a hierarchical organization, we cannot learn to act in non-authoritarian ways, unquote. Anarchists give emphasis to propaganda by deed, by which they mean exemplary actions, which by positive examples encourage others to also join in. The anarcho feminists give examples of groups that have created various community-based activities, like running a radio station or a food co-op in the U.S., in which non-authoritarian ways of running the organization have been developed. They have given central emphasis on small groups without hierarchy and domination. But the functioning of such groups in practice, the hidden tyrannical leadership that inevitably gets created, has led to many criticisms of the groups themselves. The problems encountered include hidden leadership, having leaders imposed by the media, overrepresentation of middle-class women with a lot more time on their hands, and a lack of task groups which women could join, hostility towards women who showed initiative or leadership, etc. 
When communists raise the question that the centralized state controlled by the imperialists needs to be overthrown, they admit that their efforts are small in nature and that there is a need of coordinating with others and linking up with others. But they are not willing to consider the need for a centralized revolutionary organization to overthrow the state. Basically, according to their theory, the capitalist state is not to be overthrown, but it has to be outgrown. Quote, how we proceed against the pathological state structure, perhaps the best word is to outgrow rather than overthrow, from the Anarcho-Feminist Manifesto. From their analysis, it is clear that they differ strongly from the revolutionary perspective. They do not believe in the overthrow of the bourgeois imperialist state as the central question and prefer to spend their energy in forming small groups involved in cooperative activities. In the era of monopoly capitalism, it is an illusion to think that such activities can expand and grow and gradually engulf the entire society. They will only be tolerated in a society with excess surplus like the U.S. as an oddity, an exotic plant. Such groups tend to get co-opted by the system in this way. Radical feminists have found these ideas suitable for their views and have been very much influenced by anarchist ideas of organization, or there has been a convergence of anarchist views of organization and the radical feminist views on the same. Another aspect of anarcho-feminist ideas is their concern for ecology, and we find that ecofeminism has also grown out of anarcho-feminist views. As it is, anarchists in the Western countries are active on the environmental question. Chapter 4, Ecofeminism. Ecofeminism also has close links with cultural feminism, though ecofeminists distinguish themselves. Cultural feminists like Mary Daly have taken an approach in their writing which comes close to an ecofeminist understanding. Nestor King, Vandana Shiva, and Maria Mize are among the known ecofeminists. Cultural feminists have celebrated women's identification with nature in art, poetry, music, and communes. They identify women in nature against male culture. So for example, they are active anti-militarists. They blame men for war and point out that masculine preoccupation is with death-defying deeds. Ecofeminists recognize that socialist feminists have emphasized the economic and class aspects of women's oppression, but criticize them for ignoring the question of domination of nature. Feminism and ecology are the revolt of nature against human domination. They demand that we rethink the relationship between humanity and the rest of nature, including our natural embodied selves. In ecofeminism, nature is the central category of analysis. The interrelated domination of nature, psyche and sexuality, human oppression and non-human, and the social historical position of women in these. This is the starting point for ecofeminism according to Nestor King. And in practice it has been seen, according to her, that women have been in the forefront of struggles to protect nature. The example of Chipko and Dolan, in which village women clung to trees to prevent the contractors from cutting the trees down, and Terry Garwal proves this point, according to them. There are many streams within ecofeminism. There are the spiritual ecofeminists who consider their spiritualism as paramount, while the others believe in active intervention to stop destructive practices. They say that the nature-culture dichotomy must be dissolved and our oneness with nature brought out. Unless we all live more simply, some of us won't be able to live at all. According to them, there is room for men too in the Save the Earth movement. There is one stream among ecofeminists who are against the emphasis on nature-women connection. Women must, according to them, minimize their socially constructed and ideologically reinforced special connection with nature. The present division of the world into male and female, culture and nature, 
men for culture building and women for nature building, as in child rearing and child bearing, must be eliminated and oneness should be emphasized. Men must bring culture into nature and women should take nature into culture. This view has been called social constructionist ecofeminism. Thinkers like Warren believe that it is wrong to link women to nature because both men and women are equally natural and equally cultural. Mize and Shiva combined insights from socialist feminism, as in the role of capitalist patriarchy, with insights from global feminists who believe that women have more to do with nature in their daily work around the world, and from postmodernism, which criticizes capitalism's tendency to homogenizing the culture around the world. They believe that women around the world had enough similarity to struggle against capitalist patriarchies and the destruction it spawns. Taking examples of struggles by women against ecological destruction by industrial or military interests to preserve the basis of life, they conclude that women will be in the forefront of the struggle to preserve the ecology. They advocate a subsistence perspective in which people must not produce more than is required to satisfy human needs, and people should use nature only as much as needed, not to make money, but to satisfy the necessities of the community and men and women should cultivate traditional feminine virtues such as caring, compassion, and nurturance, and engage in subsistence production, for only such a society can afford to live in peace with nature and uphold peace between nations, generations, and men and women. Women are nonviolent by nature, they claim, and consider themselves transformative eco-feminists. But the theoretical basis for Vandana Shiva's argument in favor of subsistence agriculture is actually reactionary. She makes a trenchant criticism of the Green Revolution and its impact as a whole, but from the perspective that it is from a Western patriarchal violence against women in nature. She counterposes patriarchal Western rational-slash-science with non-Western wisdom. The imperialists use the developments in agroscience to force the peasantry to increase their production, to avoid a Red Revolution, and to become tied to the MNC-sponsored market for agricultural inputs like seeds, fertilizers, and pesticides. But Shiva is rejecting agroscience altogether and uncritically defending traditional practices. She claims that traditional Indian culture, with its dialectical unity of Purusha and Prakriti, was superior to the Western philosophical dualism of man and nature, man and culture, etc. Hence, she claims that in this civilization where production was for subsistence, to satisfy the vital basic needs of people, women had a close connection with nature. The Green Revolution broke this link between women and nature. An actual fact which Shiva is glorifying is the petty pre-capitalist peasant economy with its feudal structures and extreme inequalities. In this economy, women toiled for long hours in back-breaking labor with no recognition of their work. She does not take into account the 40 conditions of Dalit and other lower caste women who toiled in the fields and houses of the feudal landlords of that time, abused, sexually exploited, and unpaid most of the time. Further, the subsistence life was not based on enough for all. In fact, women were deprived of even the basic necessities in this glorified pre-capitalist period. They had no claim over the means of production, nor did they have any independence. This lack of independence is interpreted by her and Mize as the third world women's rejection of self-determination and autonomy, for they value their connection with the community. What women value as support structures when they do have any alternative before them is being projected as a conscious rejection of self-determination by Shiva. 
In effect, they are upholding the patriarchal pre-capitalist subsistence economy in the name of ecofeminism, in the name of opposing Western science and technology. A false dichotomy has been created between science and tradition. This is a form of culturalism or postmodernism that is involved in defending the traditional patriarchal cultures of third world societies and opposing development of the basic masses in the name of attacking the development paradigm of capitalism. We are opposed to the destructive and indiscriminate push given by the profit-hungry imperialist agribusinesses to agrotechnology, including genetically modified seeds, etc. We are not against the application of science and agrotechnology to improving agricultural production. Under the present class relations, even science is the handmaiden of the imperialists, but under democratic slash socialist systems, this will not be so. It is important to retain what is positive in our tradition, but to glorify it all is anti-people. Ecofeminists idealize the relationship of women with nature, which lacks a class perspective. Women from the upper classes, whether in the advanced capitalist countries or in the backward countries like India, hardly show any sensitivity to nature as they are so absorbed in the global consumerist culture encouraged by imperialism. They do not think that imperialism is a worldwide system of exploitation. They have shown no willingness to change their privileges and basic lifestyle in order to reduce the destruction of the environment. For peasant women, the destruction of the ecology has led to untold hardships for them in carrying out their daily chores like procuring fuel, water, and fodder for cattle. Displacement due to takeover of their forests and lands for big projects also affects them negatively. Hence, these aspects can and have become rallying points for mobilizing struggles. But from this, we cannot conclude that women are against men or have a natural tendency to preserve nature. The struggle against monopoly capitalism that is relentlessly destroying nature is a political struggle, a people's issue, in which the people as a whole, men and women, must participate. And though the ecofeminist quote, the Chipko struggle, in fact, there are so many other struggles in our country in which both men and women have agitated that can be considered as ecological issues and as a fight for human rights. The Narmada agitation, the agitations of villagers in Orissa against major mining projects and against nuclear missile projects, or the struggle of tribals in Bastar and Jakarhand against the destruction of forests and major steel projects are examples of this.